Alright guys, welcome back to the Noel Castler Podcast, episode 87. Sorry I went long there on the intro. Some of you guys know how I feel about this guitar. I just put new strings on her yesterday for Christmas. This is my 65LG, my trusty bus guitar that uh, every member of Crosby, Stills, and Nash wrote or played on, and uh, who's bragging? But anyway, uh, sorry I went long. Uh, a, a listener kindly told me how to knock off that annoying recording in progress prompt, but it sort of threw off my timing, so I apologize for the extra minute of music, and I'm happy to be back talking with you guys. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. I know I did that bonus episode on Sunday, but this is the Noel Kastler podcast. So this is where I'm talking to you for reals about what's going on. And the first thing I want to do is check in, see how everybody made it, you know, made it through the holiday. Just the beginning of a long stretch, which for many people can be a very difficult time of year, including myself. I'm not going to lie, you know, but the thing I like about it is gratitude. You know, any, any season that focuses on love and gratitude and light, is okay in my book, you know. Obviously, our Christmas gets sort of co-opted and it becomes a an exercise in commercialism and consumerism. And if you're one of the people that sort of feels like you're, you know, you, you're on the other side of fortune's promise, it can feel like a, uh, you know, a, a, a lonely time and I've been there. So uh, my heart goes out to everybody. And, and what it's about is love. It's not about money. It's not about gifts. It's not about whatever your religion is. It's about, you know, a season of light. It's dark out now, right? It gets dark at 4.30. You know, we, we need something to celebrate our humanity, to celebrate those things that warm us from within. And we need it now more than ever because we're in a dark period. And as many of you well know, you know, it's chaos coming around the corner every, every day now. You know, obviously the Elon Musk stuff has got to be discussed because that was just beyond the pale. The takeover of Twitter, the degradation of Twitter, what he's doing now. You know, he's picking a fight with Apple to try and probably get them to kick him off the App Store, which would be the end of Twitter, which, you know, may be his goal from the beginning. You know, he's probably trying to destroy it because I've, as I've written about on my Substack and as I've discussed here... It's the preeminent way to, to sort of share progressive information, right? Look what's happening in China right now. People are rising up and protesting in a way that nobody has ever seen in our lifetime. You know, Tiananmen Square happened when I was in high school, and it was incredible bravery. And everybody's always going to remember that image of that young man standing in front of those tanks. But now they're everywhere, you know, and they're not just protesting about you know, COVID lockdowns and restrictions, they're talking about freedom and freedom of speech because freedom of speech is sacrosanct and it's an integral part, an integral part of humanity and prog progress and certainly democracy. And it's what Elon is making a mockery of. It's what he's sort of trying to destroy with, with what he's doing with Twitter, right? Because he doesn't really want free speech and he's using it as a guise, as a, as a, you know, a, as a way to, to accuse 
Apple of censoring him. Apple's not censoring him, you know? That, that he's saying it's a free speech situation because Apple is, is threatening to pull, you know, Twitter off their app because, you know, they don't want to, and they're certainly not advertising anymore, right? It's cost them billions in advertising. Apple was one of their preeminent advertisers, and they don't want their products advertised next to neo-Nazis, you know, and, and racist memes and all these kind of things that Elon is now sharing on a daily basis, you know, dog whistles, beyond dog whistles, right? Actual Nazi propaganda. You know, he shared this frog symbol, which is an alt-right symbol that the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, has listed as something that white nationalists and anti-Semitic idiots share, you know? And Elon's not just trolling people because he's an idiot and an asshole. And he's both of those things. Let's be real. He's not a genius. He lied about his, you know, his, his degree in physics and all this stuff. He, he's, he's a bullshitter. He's like Trump. You know, he's a rich kid from South Africa whose family made a lot of money off of emerald mines. And his dad is a complete psychopath who married his stepdaughter and had kids with her. <laughs> That's real. You can look it up. Elon kind of made the rounds, went to Canada, went to Penn, saw there was a lot of smart people around and sort of inveigled his way into their world, fell in with the rich guys in Silicon Valley, Peter Thiel and the, the PayPal founders backed that, became an early partner in that and made a fortune and then went and took the company Tesla, which was founded by two other guys, bought them out, took over the company, forced them out and then claimed credit as if he was the genius, you know, that invented electric automobiles. It's simply not true, but he became a pop culture icon, right? Because idiots appeal to idiots, just like Trump appealed to a certain demographic in this country of thinking like, he's a businessman, he's got a supermodel wife, like I want to be like him. Elon had the same appeal to crypto bros and stuff. And you know, it's not fair to completely equate the two because obviously like Elon's not a complete idiot, you know, just by the world that he's trafficking in he's going to have more information than somebody like Donald Trump, who was just a pure criminal. You know, he was the dumbest of a dumb mob guy, you know, philandering moron who can't even read. Elon's obviously a lot more intellectually capable than Trump, which makes it all the more sort of enraging that he is actually a racist, that he does know what he's doing, and he's acting as a chaos agent on behalf of Putin, on behalf of authoritarianism in this country, right? He, he, he endorsed DeSantis late last week, said everybody should vote for DeSantis. He told everybody to vote for the Republicans before the midterm. Thank God they didn't listen, okay? Because you don't want to be voting for the Republicans. The Republican Party now is not the conservative party of your grandfather or even your father, okay? This isn't William F. Buckley. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene who tweeted out this morning that you know, if underwear doesn't stop a fart, how does a mask stop COVID? Okay, that's from a U.S. Congresswoman, from somebody who most likely, you know, planted bombs the night before January 6th. But that's the kind of discourse that's in the Republican Party. You do not want to vote for that because you'll be voting against your children's future and their best interests, not just in environmental situations, but in basic humanity and health care. You know, had the Republicans had a bigger victory last month, you would have a national abortion ban. The repercussions of that, not just on women's rights and how draconian that alone is, right? That alone is a humanitarian 
human rights issue. But just think of the societal impact of having abortion be illegal in all 50 states and the chaos that would ensue and the, the you know, the damaged homes and broken lives, you know, that would stem from, from, from all these young girls and women being forced to carry to term babies that, that they weren't ready to have, you know, in, in a country that already does not take care of its own, that already has children drinking out of lead pipes, you know, in far too many cities, that has school lunch programs that have been cut, that has all the sort of mean-spirited cruelty as the point, GOP, red state, southern state, cruelty and insanity that already exists. Think of a national mandate on top of that and what it would look like, okay? It would be dystopian. It would be Armageddon. That's not hyperbole. That's reality, okay? So that's what Elon was trying to push everybody to, to shepherd all his crypto boys towards. And that's what Trump's running on, right? Right? Trump, Trump knows he has to out-extreme DeSantis at this point. That's why he had Kanye West, you know, <laughs> during Thanksgiving week, during the Thanksgiving holiday, sit down at his table and break bread with Nick Fuentes, an anti-Semitic troll who he completely knew who he was because Nick was an organizer of Stop the Steal rallies. He's got a verified account on social, social, uh, Truth Social, Trump's you know, platform. He's a big figure in that world of scumbags. You know, he's a Ben Shapiro. He's a protege of sort of that Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, all right alt-right, white supremacist world. Trump had him there. They talked, they ate turkey, and then Trump said, I like this guy. He gets me, right? Because Trump was, t or Nick was telling Trump to go DEFCON 4, you know, which was Kanye's tweet. I'm going DEFCON 4 on Jewish people, right? This is insane. This is a race to the bottom, and this isn't something to overlook. This is something... I don't want to say to be afraid of, but be very wary of. We have to be brave because we're sort of going into battle against these forces and we have to break down what exactly is going on here. You know, who stands to benefit the most from this sort of authoritarian takeover and these anti-democratic overtures, right? The chaos agents, they benefit. The billionaire ones like Elon Musk certainly benefit but also the, you know, the Koch brothers, the banking industry, the pharmaceutical industry, all the guys in the background, you know, that are pushing the crazy players forward, the MTGs and the feckless little, you know, runts like Kevin McCarthy, who's barely has enough votes to become Speaker of the House. Those guys are all being micromanaged by, by larger, more nefarious interests, okay? Elon Musk, right? He keeps tweeting... You know, he was tweeting when he took over over Twitter about like, should should Ukraine just cede part of its sovereign territory to Russia and have the war be over? Let's do a poll. And he did one of his stupid online polls about it. The same kind of online poll that allowed him and gave him cover and excuse to let Trump on there. Those polls aren't real. They're rigged. They're full of bots, you know, that swarm and and give him the result he desires and makes it look like it's free speech. It's not free speech. He's shutting down free speech, right? He kicked my friend Kathy Griffin off right away for satire, for mocking him, you know, and his megalomania on our communication platform. And now he's making life chaotic on a daily basis, right? He tweeted out a picture of guns on his bedside table. Yeah, one was a replica, one was a video game gun. 
but they still look like serious weapons. And he's a privileged white guy, so he can say that's cute. What do you think that gun in the hands of a young black guy would end up, you know, causing if he were to walk around town carrying that thing, right? We all remember Tamir Rice and what happened to him, right? In Cleveland or Ohio somewhere. So, you know, it's such a snarky bitch move to begin with. And when you put that on top of the fact that we had two mass shootings that captured the national national psyche last week, we had more than two, sadly. We had multiple, and you don't even hear about most of them anymore. But the bigger, more heinous ones capture our attention for a moment. And we had the Club Q shooting. We had the shooting at the Walmart in Virginia. We had families sit down to their Thanksgiving table without their children and loved ones present, you know, still in the shock and horror and aftermath of something that should never happen, that when it happened in other Western nations, they shut it down right away, right? Happened in Australia, shut it down. Happened in England, shut it down. Happened in New Zealand, shut it down. Because they're real men. They're real people. They care about humanity. But the United States is full of toxic masculine little dolts and geeks like Elon Musk who think it's cute to trigger people, to own the libs, you know, the F your feelings crowd. This is what I wrote about in Substack today. It's like that kind of snark appeals to broken men. It appeals to, appeals to people who haven't done work on themselves. You know, all these guys have daddy issues, right? Trump was like, you know, harassed and sort of harangued by his father his whole life. I'm not saying to feel sorry for him because Trump's a scumbag, but his dad was a scumbag too, right? And he didn't separate from it. He didn't heal from that wound. And if you don't do the work on yourself, it ends up coming out in ways that affect those around you, right? That's what addiction is. You know, addiction, the, the, the true crime of addiction or the true you know, I shouldn't say crime because addiction is a disease. I suffer from it myself, you know, but the true sort of, you know, horror and the guilt that you carry if you're somebody who has spent time in recovery, most likely is, is things that you've done to other people that you care about. You know, the collateral damage is what haunts one most when they do the work on themselves. And, and here's guys that are walking around damaging everyone around them. You know, fueling their resentments with little bots and MAGA, you know, idiots that show up and tell Trump he's, he's the greatest and he sits there and spews hate for two hours and how everyone has wronged him. You know, who's wronged the guy? He was a millionaire by the time he was 11 months old because his dad was using him as a tax shelter and hiding money in his name so he didn't pay taxes on it. By the time, time Trump was three, he was a multimillionaire. You know, he grew up in Jamaica Estates, Queens. He got kicked out of normal schools because he was such a problem child, punching his teachers and being an idiot, throwing rocks at the neighbor's baby. So he got sent to reform school for rich kids, which is a military academy up near West Point in the Hudson Valley, you know, which some kids had to sacrifice to go to. It wasn't reform school for everybody. For some children, you know, and young men, it was an honor to go there. But for somebody like Trump, he was an embarrassment and it was to get him out of Queens and he wasn't getting into Horace Mann, <laughs> you know? So that's where he ended up. He wasn't getting into Columbia Prep, let's be real. But anyway, that's a little inside stuff for you New York listeners. Anyway, point being, these guys never heal from their pain, you know? And it's okay to have shame. My dad took off when I was three, you know, three or four years old. I missed him 
most of my childhood. You know, I, I would see him at Christmas and maybe one, once, you know, once or twice a year, he'd pick me up and drive me to school. And then I wouldn't see him again for an hour or for a year, <laughs> you know, and I'd spend the first hour of the school day, like trying to hide my tears, you know, from the hole it ripped open inside of me. And it never got better from there, you know, and, and there's, there's more to that story that I could tell you. It's not about me right now, but you know, my point is like, I basically have two dads that I never really knew and, and it caused a lot of pain and it still does. You know, last time I saw my biological father was 17 years ago when I checked into rehab on Thanksgiving weekend. I was estranged from him. He came to visit me. Give me a ride out of rehab a month later when I got out of there, borrowed money from me, and I never heard from him again. <laughs> okay? So, you know, we all have our stories. The point is you do work on it. You know, you recover. You don't, you don't put your pain on other people. And what we're, what we're seeing now in the world is a lot of people that are trying to put their pain on others. They're trying to achieve power you know, to fill that hole inside of themselves. And it never works, right? Because they're never happy. Trump wasn't like, oh, I got to be president now. I don't even know how to read. And I'm president of the United States. This is awesome. You know, I know I was an asshole most of my life, but I'm going to try to do good. And then I'm just going to ride off into the sunset. He didn't do that. He was aggrieved and overwhelmed from the beginning, right? He didn't show up to the office every day until noon and he lived upstairs right? Imagine that. He's got literally the most important job in the world, and he couldn't be bothered to make it downstairs until noon, because he spent all morning snorting Adderall, watching them talk about him on Fox and Friends, and doing his freakish hair. Literally. <laughs> and then they called it executive time, and he'd come down at noon. Think of what you're entrusted with when you're president of the United States, right? You have the fate of the free world basically in your hands, right? You have millions upon millions of Americans who are going to either do better or do worse based on the decisions you make. You shouldn't have a moment thinking about yourself beyond taking care of yourself so you can do your job well, right? Beyond applying your skills and talents to the enormous privilege of serving at such a capacity. And any man who doesn't have the medal for that has no business anywhere near the office. You know, say what you want about Joe Biden. He's that kind of guy. He takes it seriously, you know? And he had the VP gig under Obama, President Obama, who was the greatest in my lifetime at empathy, you know, and, and, and doing the job with the thought of others at the forefront of your reality and also being in touch with your own humanity at the same time, not neglecting yourself, not not taking time for yourself, right? Obama would work all day. I say Obama like he's my buddy. <laughs> President Obama would work all day and then he would go read literature at night. He would read whatever books had come out. You know, a lot of it was novels you know, about other cultures and stuff. If you ever look at his reading list, which probably is going to come out soon, right? He does it every Christmas. You're like, this is a man. Like, this is an intellectual. And it's not all super historical tomes and academic stuff. It's culture. It's life. It's other people's stories, you know? And why did he do that? So he could learn about the world around him and affect change better, you know? So he wasn't just thinking about his own point of view and his own perspective. He was trying to understand others, 
so he could help everybody, right? That should be the goal of any politician. You know, and, and you can't ever really accomplish something like that because we're all coming from our own point of views and our own cultures and our own family dynamics and all those things that color you. And that's okay because that's what makes you you, right? But the folks that go beyond it are the ones that are curious about the other, that see diversity as a richness, you know, that aren't threatened by somebody else's success, that understand the basic principle of if you want your dreams to come true, help somebody else's dream come true. You know, that's the secret to life. You want to make it? Do that. Spend your energy lifting somebody else up and you'll be amazed at the results, you know. And, and these are people who got that, you know, who understood that. And that understanding, understanding doesn't come naturally. It comes with work, you know. I learned that philosophy from Oprah, as some of you guys might know, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, I, I want you to think about that in context of what guys like Elon Musk are doing or what Trump is doing, you know. Trump right now is like, who can help me hate more so the bad guys like me again? Because he's a bad guy. He doesn't care. He just wants to stay out of jail. He doesn't want to be president again. He hated it. You know, he wants to be down in South Florida swinging a golf club and getting jerked off by his like, you know, trumpets at night. Sorry. <laughs> you know, that's reality. He wants to get high. He doesn't want people peering over his shoulders. You know, he doesn't want to be president. He doesn't want to go to jail. And he's scared to death of Jack Smith, the new special prosecutor, as he should be. Because Trump left a lot of crumbs, right? He wasn't a master criminal, this guy. He, he was sloppy and stupid, and nobody really had the balls to take him down because they were hoping he would just go away, and they wouldn't have to pull all the others that were entangled with him down as well. That's why the banking industry allowed him to exist in New York City when they knew he was cooking the books. You know, they gave him every break in the world to sort of exist in a society that was geared towards not holding a man like Trump accountable. You know, the whole country is designed to let a guy like Trump get away with being Trump. And he basically pushed it so far that nobody can take it anymore, that you have to sort of take him down. You know, and hopefully we finally will get that with the special prosecutor. I know we're all frustrated. I've talked about that ad nauseum, but I just have to be hopeful, especially... You know, the guy was filing stuff on Thanksgiving. He, he's working from, from, from Den Haag or something. He's not even in the United States, you know. So, like, he's over by the Hague and all that stuff. Like, I think he's injured, you know. He, he's convalescing and doing all this work at the same time, which is probably Trump's worst nightmare because the guy's brilliant and he's going to uncover every rock and he's going to have Trump dead to rights. And that's why Trump's tweeting about it, right? But the most important thing to think about here is, you know, it's easy to focus on Trump and he's a bad guy and he needs to go down and we need to see that happen. But what Trump was selling, what these others are selling, what has metastasized in the GOP is very popular in red state America. And by red state America, I'll include where I am an hour north of the city. You know, I see it every day and I see it everywhere. This stuff is playing right? It's playing in Peoria, so to speak, the white supremacy, you know, the anti-Semitism that's now mainstream in America. I can't imagine 
that this is happening in my lifetime. The kind of stuff I see on a daily basis in, you know, in elevated positions boggles the mind. When I was a child, it was all about learning about the Holocaust and remembrance. You know, I was a kid in the 70s, right? So we're, you know, 30 years out of the war, essentially 40 years at that point, pretty much, right? So it was kind of recent history. It's still recent history, you know? It's recent enough that nobody should be having dinner with Holocaust deniers, you know? I had a babysitter when I was a child, and she was the mother of my mom's best friend, who was a gay man that was a lot, around a lot in my life, and like an uncle, and go to Boy Scout meetings with me. And his mom had survived a concentration camp. She was a Jewish woman. She survived a camp. She was a child in the camp, you know, and her job was cleaning up these rooms where, you know, where people had been murdered, you know, mopping up the brains and the blood, you know, horrific kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, survived it and came to the U.S. and started a family. But she would babysit me as a kid. And I remember one time we were in a laundromat. And uh, this is back when not everybody had a laundry machine in their house, you know. And, uh, I mean, they still don't. But anyway, uh, we were at the laundromat one day and a car backfired outside, you know. And she, you know, subconsciously it scared her to the point and brought back the memories God knows what those memories were, but it sounded like a gunshot, and she soiled herself, and we had to, you know, rush out of there real quick. She was embarrassed, and I remember seeing the embarrassment and the shock and the horror on this woman's face. You know, who was an old woman at this point, at least to my, you know, childhood eyes, you know, 50s, 60s or something. And, uh, you know, probably younger than that if you do the math. This has been in the 1970s. But anyway... I just remember seeing that pain, you know, and it had to be explained to me later in that day what had happened by my mom, you know, and, you know, that's humanity. That's what happens. You know, the people that survive carry scars and wounds that never really heal. You learn to live with, but they don't heal. Horrors like that are beyond the pale, right? And they're not something to joke around with for some little cyber bro you know, to make memes about or some comedian to repeat anti-Semitic tropes on SNL because all his little buddies are going to think it's funny, you know? Jews don't run Hollywood. Yeah, there's a lot of Jewish people in Hollywood because they got kicked out of New York when the film industry began. So they went up there and set up shop and they're smart, creative people. So they made a great success of it and it benefited the entire world and became almost the greatest export of American culture. That's why the Nazis tried to co-opt it, you know, at the beginning of World War II. So, which is a whole nother episode, right? And I think Rachel Maddow is doing a, a podcast on Nazis in our Senate. So anti-Semitism has always been here. We haven't always been the good guys, you know, which we should all be very conscious of, right? We finally joined World War II, and we, we won that war, not alone. You know, a lot of other nations fought alongside us. If, if you listen to American culture, you wouldn't even know, like, there was Canadians and Australians and all these other guys. But anyway, uh, that's a digression. We certainly did the heavy lifting, and the war certainly wouldn't have been won without the bravery and the industry of America. And the same people, the same great-grandsons and grandsons of guys who stormed the beach at Normandy, you know, who died in the mud at Guadalcanal, you know, who sat in POW camps, you know, 
weighing 80, 90 pounds, you know, in the Pacific somewhere, getting tortured for a year or two, you know? The guys who liberated the camps in Germany, the horrors they had to see that humanity would do this to humanity. It's beyond the pale. War is awful, you know? And to deny something that happened like that and then make money off it off of YouTube, you know, which is what these guys do, and then get invited to Mar-a-Lago and sit down with a mob boss idiot who's trying to stay out of jail and kiss his ass for an hour and have him kiss your ass along with a maniac rapper whose music always sucked, <laughs> you know? And I like hip-hop. Hip-hop hip -hop paid for a lot of the stuff you see around, these guitars and stuff. You know, that was a bread and butter of working in live TV. I'm a fan of hip-hop. I'm obsessed with hip-hop document, you know, documentaries. It ain't my wheelhouse. I'm a classic rock guy. I don't pretend to know a lot about it, but I've met all the major players. You know, I knew Tupac's mom. I knew Biggie Smalls' mom, Violetta Wallace. Like, I sat and talked with these people. You know, Chuck D., retweeted me recently, commented on my tweet, <laughs> you know, that was, you worked in live TV in the 90s, you know, in 2000s and stuff, you were firmly, you know, in the world of hip-hop, and I remember when Kanye became the big thing, I did a jingle ball with him at Madison Square Garden, and I was like, all right, everybody's, you know, college dropout had come out, everybody's raving about this guy, everybody seems to love it, Trey showed up at the gig, and uh, from, from Fish, and I brought Trey some bottles of water. He was there with his kids, his daughter, and uh, I kind of went backstage and watched the gig, like hoping to get it, because I'm a fan of music. I want to be moved. It didn't move me, you know? It, it's not to say it's not good, but it, it didn't work on me, because I, I can see things that aren't genuine, and there's something very ungenuine disingenuine about his art because it's a hype machine it's i'm a genius and he was talking like that back then he'd show up with 80 suitcases for his wardrobe and all these harried assistants and you could just see the guy was an asshole you know and, and that always repels me immediately okay because i've worked with paul mccartney and people that have every right to be a jerk and they're like hi i'm paul you know <laughs> like no bs springsteen all these guys you know but then you get you know, the insecure ones, right? It fits in with the theme of what I'm talking about. The insecure guys with daddy issues or mommy issues, you know, the guys who haven't done the work on themselves that are still working out their own sort of ability to decipher life and navigate their own emotions. The guys that are working that out in a public arena, you know, that are making sort of chaos and problems for those around them, it never works out, right? Watch Phil Spector's documentary. It was a great example of that, right? His dad killed himself as a kid. It seriously messed him up. He had some great work. He got too much credit for what he did. He became a sort of maniacal studio guy. And then he abused women his whole life and would pull out guns and he abused other artists. And then he finally killed somebody and he died in jail, you know? two years ago of COVID, you know, and nobody's going to miss him, <laughs> you know, because he, you know, he's an example of what happens when you don't do that work and you get too much wealth, too much, you know, yes men, you know, he held Ronnie Spector captive in his mansion, you know, he lived in a castle in like Encino or something, you know, Calabasas, he held her captive 
for like a year and she had to run out <laughs> in the middle of the night like through the woods so anyway you know that's an extreme example but it's the same vibe and i met phil specter at the rock and roll hall of fame you know when we used to do it in the ballroom in the 90s at the waldorf i think it was when ronnie was inducted but um i remember him walking by me and like looking all crazy and he had the crazy wig on and i was just like whoa <laughs> you know same vibe though you know the people that give you a chill when they walk by you got to pay attention to that that's intuition right because people are all kind of energy underneath it all right we're energy we're a light that's what leaves when you're gone right you're it's animating you now and we're this wonderful thing as i talked about in the last episode that the deeper you get into your own body in a presence sense the more aware you become of your own consciousness that's the light the light is your consciousness right and if you focus on that from a, a, a place beyond your own personality it'll it'll shine brighter right it's like a log you know you got a big burning bonfire and you put a little log in it you know and when you pull that little log out it's going to be burning that much brighter right because you're getting in touch with sort of the source energy you can think of of your own consciousness the same way and when you go beyond the ego which doesn't mean to disavowing the ego it means not completely identifying with your sense of self right i'm noel it's cold in my house today my hair keeps falling in my eyes like whatever things are about me right the bigger picture is beyond me something's observing that right at the same time i just said that to you right now there's something larger than me that is aware of myself right and, and that's the area you want to put your focus if you can that's what meditation is right focusing on the breath focusing on something or an object or your body so your mind chatter you know kind of ceases for a moment if you're like me it's never really going to shut off and it's a tool it's a muscle right you need it but a brain is an overworked muscle you know the rest of my body not overworked <laughs> right the, nobody's going to accuse me of overworking the rest of my muscles though i had glistening beautiful abs when i used to do hot yoga in my late 30s i promise you it was a sight to behold but uh, <laughs> and uh it, that period ended you know you get into your 40s and you got a habit for ice cream it goes away but my point is i'm not overworking these other muscles but i'm overworking my brain not that i'm thinking too hard or i'm too smart it's just there's too much chatter and that's not what it was designed for you know having mental discipline means sort of getting out of your own way sometimes giving your mind a chance to rest right that's why we use drugs and alcohol and sometimes that'll work you know it'll work for a minute if you're somebody like me it never works for long and it causes more problems than it cures you know but some people that's what a glass of wine or a hit of a joint does and more power to you but you can go beyond that and you can do it even without the substances or the substances can help you get there that's not for me to judge but my point is you get into that zone right what, what stuff we talk about in music you know you just get inspired and the music begins to play you right and there's thinking you're using your brain right you're using the mechanics of your hands you know to, to get this sound out into the world but sometimes it carries you away 
and, and it reveals to you something bigger than yourself, something you couldn't even achieve on your own, you know, borrowed courage in a way, right? Borrowed inspiration because it's coming from a place beyond, right? That's why everybody loves the Beatles, right? Because the Beatles were like four dudes in Liverpool, you know, that like heard rock and roll and was like, oh, this is awesome. Let's try playing this, you know, and played it every night, you know, to the point they got good enough to be a bar band and they played over in Hamburg, you know, three sets a night for a year, became tight as hell, right? Still doing covers, still doing American music, right? All the greats in America, Little Richard, you know, who's the first great singer in rock and roll, you know, Carl Perkins, big, you know, John Lennon, big influence. Carl Perkins is a badass, you know, the killer who just passed away. I told you that story, you know, all these guys, right? But then, you know, blues, you know, that's more the stones were more like, you know, muddy waters. But anyway, they heard all this stuff. And then at a certain point, you know, George Martin was like, you guys got to start writing your own songs. Like, unless you write your own songs, we're not going to make any money, you know, because all the money's in publishing, you know? So they essentially, Lennon and McCartney, locked themselves into a room and learned how to write their own tunes, you know? And they were such not that they were, you know, they're obviously gifted people, but they, these weren't Mozart type guys. You know, these weren't like obvious, you know, sort of savants. These weren't child prodigies. These were working class kids, you know, growing up in gray, you know, post-war England, you know, and here in this export from the United States that sailors would bring in because Liverpool is a port town, right? So they'd get records before anybody else in England got them. Right. So they'd get the latest singles from America and, and get that inspiration quicker, touching the flame, as, as Graham Nash would call it. You know, so they were getting a heavy dose of the flame, you know, and they had that magic that all the great bands have, which is they're all from the same place. They all grew up together. Right. All my favorite, favorite bands are always from a local area. You know, the Allman Brothers, you know, uh, uh, you know tragically hip in Canada, you know, these are friends, Radiohead, you know, they all went to Oxford, like prep school, they all went to the same prep school, you know, they've been playing together since they was, they were kids, there's something that gels when, when people do that, that you can't recreate on any other way, that, you know, it becomes like one organism for a while, and then they grow up, and they all grow apart, usually, but when they're still young, it's a beautiful thing, and the Beatles had that, Right. And so these guys are locked in a room and they learned how to write, you know, they learned how to write and it became something bigger than themselves. Right. I want to hold your hand, you know, twist and shout. I don't, I don't think twist and shouts an original. Somebody will have to put it in there. Could be. But uh, you know what I mean? They had these early sort of boy band tunes where they're in their uniforms and they played the Ed Sullivan show and it turned on America and it started the British invasion. Right. But a few short years after that, they're putting out Rubber Soul and the White Album and Sgt. Peppers, right? Because they're getting out of their own way. You know what I mean? You know, they're, they're not recreating what they already did and what their brains had learned to do. They were letting their minds and their influences be open to all the stuff around them, right? George Harrison was getting into Ravi Shankar and going to, you know, studying yoga and Eastern mysticism and stuff. You know, and they all went to India, and you can feel that influence. You know, you can feel sort of like the folkier influence. You can see Dylan's influence on them, right? Because Dylan 
met the Beatles early on and it was like, oh, it doesn't have to be I, I want to hold your hand. You know, I can start talking about what is really happening in my life. You know, and for somebody like John Lennon, who is in many ways like the first punk rock or something, because he was just like, he was out of F's to give, as the kids say today, right? He, he talked about hitting Cynthia Lennon in a song, you know? I used to be cruel to my woman, I beat her and kept her from apart from the things that she loved or whatever, right? That's a crazy thing to admit and put in a, in a pop song, you know, <laughs> when you're the biggest band in the world, you know? Think of somebody doing that today and their agent being like, yeah, yeah, I think we should tell everybody that, you know, you're a domestic abuser. Like, I think that's a good business plan. But he didn't care that it was a good business plan. He was trying to show his growth as a human being through his art. And what was the effect of that? It got the rest of the world to be like, you know what? I'm fucked up too. <laughs> you know, like, maybe I should look at myself. Maybe this music is bigger than something we just dance to and make out. Maybe it can can become a therapy you know maybe, maybe we can grow maybe there's work to do and we can use this medium you know to make the world a better place and it happened to coincide with all this chaos in america and in the world right you had the vietnam war by the late 60s you had all the civil unrest you know from the civil rights movement you know so genuine you know happened for a reason you know when you assassinate martin luther king you had all this stuff happening and the music was reflecting it right and it was a threat to the same right-wing establishment in the same way that things like twitter are a threat today you know the fbi had a dossier you know on uh on john lennon right and that inspiration thing I'm trying to think of the head of the FBI back then, you know, the guy who would, founded Cointelpro and would dress up like ladies. They named, they named the, uh, the FBI building about, uh, about him, you know, or after him, right, in, in D.C. The same building that Trump blocked. They were going to sell and tear down that building and build a hotel that was going to be a competitor of Trump's hotel in D.C., and he had the GAO block the sale of that hotel, which as president, which alone would have been enough of a scandal for another president in his term that would have been a black mark forever. And it's one of the hundreds of things that that guy did and got away with. But I'm digressing. Let's get back to the Beatles. So think of McCartney writing Let It Be, right? If I have the story correct, he sort of came to him in a dream kind of thing. He woke up, went to the piano. It was like he was having a dream about his mom who had passed away, right? Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom. Let it be, right? When I find myself in times of trouble, let it be, right? Let life alone, you know? Let it happen. It doesn't mean don't take action. It means be still. Let it be. Acceptance, radical acceptance, as we said last week, you know? Right? Accept the present moment. Go deeply into the present moment, go deeply into your own being, and then you're going to react from a place that will affect change. You know, even if you're scared and confused, the next action will sort of come to you if you tune into that intuition, if you tune into that sort of higher power, right? And that's what that song is. It's like a modern day gospel, right? It reminds you that all is not bad, that there is comfort, you know? 
that there are angels around us. You know, that there is a way to get through this life that can be dark and sad and hard, right? And we learn that stuff from art. We learn that stuff from the humanities. I'm going to have a sip of water. Right? We learn that stuff by learning from each other, by communicating with each other. And that's what they're going after. That's what Elon is trying to shut down. You know, that's what Trump is trying to sort of shut down. Right? They're trying to clamp down on any sort of progressivism and, and pushback on their fascism because they know if we all sort of go away and, you know, we're all just kumbaya on some other website, you know, that that they're going to have one. You know, they're there to mess with us as trolls and push us off that site. And it's frustrating as hell, and I get it, and I'm not telling you to stay on Twitter. It, you know, it is pretty unusable at this point, but you can still put stuff out there. You know, and for somebody like me, I put the podcast out there, people are going to hear it, right? I got 400,000 followers on Twitter. You know, I haven't posted on any of the other sites. The Mastodon site kicked me off as soon as I set up an account. I never posted once, right? So these other things, my point is these other things are not alternatives to Twitter. You know, we might be kidding ourselves and thinking they are, and someday they may be. But in terms of reach and scope, we're years away from any other platform having the same, you know, efficacy as Twitter does in disseminating information. And they know that, right? That's worth $44 billion to a guy who doesn't want to pay taxes, you know, who's the richest man in the world, who doesn't want any pushback on the environmental abuses of SpaceX, right? That's worth an investment, you know, from Putin, who's losing a war, you know, that was an illegal unfunded war and an invasion of Ukraine, and he's getting his ass kicked, you know, and he knows that his soldiers went in and committed a bunch of war crimes and tortured people. He doesn't want that spreading around Twitter as it easily would be disseminated without the demise of it. Now you don't hear about it. Think about how often you hear on, you know, you hear about Ukraine on Twitter these days or even in the mainstream media, you know, which is also, you know, in some ways working in concert with this movement and that's not to say like all the excellent reporters out there of which there are many even on your mainstream media these people care you know <laughs> don't kid yourself that nicole wallace and joy reed and um who's the rachel maddow you know what i mean lawrence o'donnell like these guys deeply care about stuff but you know they're owned by parent companies they're owned by corporations that didn't dig deep into trump the first time, even though it was common knowledge in New York City. And they're not really digging deep into it now, and I'll tell you why. Because the outrage provides a lot of clickable content, right? If you look at what everyone's talking about in the last few days, it's all about like, can you believe Trump, you know, doesn't disavow his dinner with a white supremacist? Yeah, I can believe it. You know, the first time he got sued by the Justice Department was 1973. You know, he and his father got sued because they would put a big C on any rental application that happened to belong to a black family, and then they wouldn't rent him an apartment, right? He was sued in 1973 from the Justice Department for that, you know, and they paid a fine, and he resued and did all his legal BS that he's always done to hide behind, right? Then he used, you know, the N-word on Celebrity Apprentice, as I've talked about and heard him say, former contestants, Kwame Jackson, 
you know, knows he called him the M-word. He didn't pick Holly Robinson Pete. I've told you guys that story. He said they want me to pick the N-word, and he chose Brett Michaels instead. <laughs> you know, a guy who could barely stand up, let alone function as a corporate officer, which was supposed to be the point of the show. You know, and he was presented with somebody like Holly Robinson Pete, who in all my time, which was six seasons of that show, was easily the smartest, most impressive person that he ever had on that show. You know, if you were a corporate officer, you would have tripped over yourself to hire this woman and Trump refused so uh, to make her the winner and he chose this dude from Poison. So uh, no offense to Poison, I've told that story before. I worked with them on the Tony Awards when the, he didn't come to soundcheck and a big scrim came down on his head, knocked him out, gave him brain damage. It happens, it's rock and roll. <laughs> it's not the guy you hire to run your company. So my point being, that all this insanity, you know, it, it drives clicks. The people knew who Trump was. It's documented. There's books about it, you know. James Richard Zirin wrote a book about the 4,000 lawsuits Trump was involved in before he became president. It's either James Zirin or Richard, I can't remember. But, you know, this stuff was common knowledge. And I've told many of the stories on this podcast. I won't get back into them. But my point is this outrage that we're now dealing with, like, Oh my God, you know, he won't disavow a Nazi. How many times have we been there, right? How many times were we there at the debate when he wouldn't denounce the Proud Boys and he said, stand by and stand back or whatever, right? How many times were we there in Charlottesville when he said there's good people on both sides? And by the way, Nick Fuentes was at Charlottesville. You know, he was one of the organizers of January 6th, which was organized by white supremacists. And that's the ultimate point I want to make is that Trump goes away. That's a good thing for humanity, but it doesn't all go away. Just like Nazism hasn't gone away with the death of Hitler, right? People are still collecting swastikas and thinking it's cool and dressing up that way and wanting to be neo-Nazis, right? Because the idea and the way it infiltrates ignorance, especially race-based ignorance, it's hard to eradicate. You only eradicate it with light and love. And broken men fear that, right? People that are broken are looking for a reason for their hardships. You know, I'm this way because you made me feel this way and I'm going to get revenge on you. You know, and then everything's going to be better. And it never is. It doesn't work. It just causes more suffering, right? Violence begets violence. Curse on the house of Atreus. If you know your Greeks, you know, I played Agamemnon once in drama school. But anyway, you know, now I'm thinking about Clytemestra. And, you know, I, I'm digressing here, but you get my point, okay? It doesn't work. What the only thing that really works is, is, is taking responsibility for your own actions, becoming humble, you know, and, and figuring out a way to serve your fellow man. And that doesn't mean everybody has to go, you know, work in a soup kitchen or give away all their possessions. It means you got to get right with yourself, take care of your family, and live an honest life. You know, strive towards honesty. Nobody's telling the truth all the time. Everybody's got their secrets and their shame, right? But ultimately, there's really nothing to be ashamed of beyond not doing the work that would allow you to use this lifetime to be the best version of yourself you can be. You know, and that doesn't mean being a billionaire and driving a big mega yacht, you know, that's polluting the planet. You know, it means having the ability to make somebody else smile, to 
alleviate somebody else's burden, to find gratitude in your own life for the things you already have, because then you realize you have enough, right? That was the blessing of my childhood, you know, and I had hardships and, 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 and part, I had a childhood that wasn't all terrible. Nothing is black and white. And if you hear, hear me tell the story, I often tell the, you know, the kind of sad parts and, and there's a lot of them, but you know, there's also a lot of blessings. There was a lot of blue skies and sunny days and beaches and art and culture and things I got exposed to that I know a lot of my classmates and peers didn't, you know, I got it at an early age. And the best thing I got was an ability to feel gratitude for what I had. And it wasn't all the time. You know, I spent a lot of nights crying myself to sleep as a kid, right? But I spent a lot of days smiling. You know, I, I, I always had an intuition you know, that, that something bigger than myself was looking out for me and that the world was a wonderful place. You know, I've told that story of going out of my house. It was in Crofton, Maryland. I lived as a kid and there was a little creek by a street nearby. And I remember seeing salamanders in that creek and these little like orange dots on them or whatever. And being like, this is amazing. Like this stuff is just walking around in the world. Why am I playing with matchbox cars and all this man-made crap? And this is free, you know? This is just out here to enjoy birds and squirrels and grass and flowers, you know? The essence of being alive, you know? Cool, clean air, you know? Like this is a privilege, man. This is, this is a miracle. If you study Buddhism, do you know how many... Do you know how hard it is to have a human birth? If you listen to, to, to Buddhism, like how many, how many cycles your soul has to go through before it manifests in this body and this being, you know, where you can affect change and inspire others, but it's up to you, right? That's what free will is. You can do good or bad, you know, you can pick up a paintbrush or pick up a gun, you know, you can inspire a life and you can take a life. You know, and if you're not checking in with yourself, if you're not making, you know, right with yourself, you know, and the world around you, you can get twisted up and you can get especially twisted up in our culture right now where you have a political party in the GOP that's basically encouraging you to be the worst version of yourself, right? That's what we're doing. We're a few weeks away from Christmas, right? What are we going to see on Twitter? you know, in the next few days. We're going to see all the Christmas cards from the GOP folks posing with their AR-15s in front of their Christmas tree with their little kids holding guns, you know, people like Thomas Massey and Lauren Boebert, you know, who did it last year. They're going to do it again because they think it's cool and funny to show those symbols of hate, of violence. You think Jesus would be holding an AR-15? <laughs> you know? We saw how they reacted to the Club Q shooting. Trump's lawyer, Jenna Ellis, said all the victims were burning in hell because they weren't real Christians. That's not a religion. That's a cult. That's a hate cult designed to destroy this place. And it's being manipulated by rich guys who don't want to be held accountable and never did the work on themselves, right? Normal people have that much wealth, they spend the rest of their life trying to give it away, starting foundations. Right? You know, Microsoft dude, you know, Bill Gates is a, certainly not a saint, right? And he's probably, you know, 
probably a little creepier than we all know, given the Epstein stuff, but he sounded, you know, he started a foundation, right? His wife, Melinda, or Belinda, I think it's Melinda, she's given a lot of money away, right? Jeff Bezos' wife has given money away. You know, Ted Turner famously said in the 90s, who I met, I love Ted Turner, he was like my kind of billionaire. He was like, look, how many houses and boats do you need? You know, after you get a couple, you realize how much wealth you have and, and how much you can help those who are suffering, and that becomes your only goal. You know, and Ted was a playboy. He was a World Cup, you know, sailor and stuff, and, a, you know, famous, you know, drunk and all that. <laughs> not, <laughs> not that that's a good thing. I'm just saying, you know, that guy had his fun. He wasn't living like, he wasn't, you know, Warren Buffett eating a ham sandwich every day up in Omaha. You know, he was enjoying his money, but like, you know, that's the, the, the ultimate sin of these guys is like, look, dude, you more than anybody could be working on yourself. You have all the time in the world. You have all the money at your disposal. If you have issues, go buy yourself an island in the Caribbean, fly in some therapists, you know, get a massage every day, do some work on yourself, get in touch with that part of you that comes alive and wants to do something for others, you know, and then get back out there in the world and make a difference. Don't sit around and troll people all day on Twitter, all day on Twitter, when you're supposed to be running three companies and you're really running three of them into the ground, you know, which is what's going to happen. He's torturing the employees at Twitter at this point, you know. He's firing them every day. He fired a bunch right on Christ on Thanksgiving Eve. He just sent out another round of like, you're going to get fired. You know, he, he's putting his own pain on others. It, it basically boils down to that. You know, people become sadistic and they want to abuse others. And people in, in positions of leadership and privilege have more of a responsibility to be kind than others, in my opinion. Right? It's like the old adage from the Kennedys. I'm going to paraphrase, but, you know, it's like for those that have given a lot, more is, is, more is expected. Right? More is expected of you. And business leaders are cultural thought leaders in our society. We worship them. And they've always been in capitalism, right? You don't think the Rockefellers and the Carnegies had an undue outside, outsize interest on how our presidencies work, you know, and, and our executive branch? You don't think they go a long way towards pick, picking the president, right? It was like that scene in Secession when they all got together to pick the president. That's, you know, that's kind of how it is, right? Davos and stuff is all these rich guys because their influence is disproportionate and the decisions they make and how they behave is going to have repercussions, you know, for the populations of a good part of the world, if not the entire world at this point. So it's serious stuff, you know, and, and we have to look at why these men are behaving this way. You know, what work haven't they done on themselves? You know, and I'm not saying this like we're going to go rescue Elon or Donald Trump. Why I'm saying this is we have a culture where the NRA and the GOP, you know, and all these right-wing pundits and, 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 you know, Alex Joneses and all these awful men are making money off of spurring on these idiots and building an army, right? And, and white supremacy, anti-Semitism is going to be sort of the next circus tent that all these freaks gather under. Because it's an easy sell. You know, it's just like the xenophobia that Trump ran on first time, right? And the bullying. You know, that was refreshing. 
it, for for people, <laughs> not for me. It was disgusting, and and for you too, I'm sure. But it was refreshing for the idiots who didn't know much about politics to sort of be welcomed into the ring and be like, hey. This guy talks just like we do. He hates Mexicans too. He likes big titties, you know? Like his wife is, you know, whatever. You know, I don't want to be misogynistic. I'm just saying he had all these idiot trappings that these dumb people felt empowered by seeing. You know, they would go to a rally and they would play some pablum song like Proud to be an American. And people would be like, hell yeah, that's me. I'm a patriot. Meanwhile, they're helping a guy who brought in anti-Semitism back in the forefront of American culture, you know? Guy who's siding with the people that their grandfathers fought against and making it hip again. And that isn't going to go away overnight. That's here, you know? And that's what we have to eradicate, you know? That's where we need to now step up and knock it down. Silence is complicity. Don't be silent. If you hear anything about it, Stay, say something in that moment. Push back. You know, don't let these tropes get circulated because they've been around forever, you know, and they don't go away and they affect the host like a cancer, you know, and they lead to all kinds of problems which shut us all off from progress. Okay. If you think it's just that group of people, it's not my own, it's not going to affect me, you're completely wrong, you know, and, and that's the lesson of history is that egoic, brain, you know, addled idiots, you know, damaged guys can do a lot of, you know, harm in this world. You lost over 100 million people in the 20th century from various wars, from guys like Pol Pot and guys like Stalin and guys like Hitler and guys like Franco and guys like Mussolini, right? The list goes on. So you have to think about that, you know, how much effect one bad actor can have on the world. And we've never been in the position we're in now where ideas can travel around the world in a matter of minutes or seconds. You know, Elon Musk has 114 million followers or 113 million followers. Most of them are bots, but say half of them aren't, you know, that's 60 million people that are seeing an anti-Semitic trope and a lot of kids see that you know and by kids I mean like teenagers dumbass knuckle-headed boys who think it's cute and funny they don't even really understand what it means and they'll repeat it in classrooms you know and I've done dumb stuff like that you know when you're a kid you know y you don't always have the best perspective and you're dealing with peer pressure and you're trying to you know make your buddies think you're tough and cool. And, and, and that's a lot of the vibe that these guys are doing, right? It's a lack of empathy, right? That's their whole thing. Like liberals, you know, liberal tears, cry more, soy boy. You know, those are all the insults I get, you know, they're trying to act like they don't have feelings, right? That's what damaged people do because they're afraid of their own feelings. So they get together and, and they become sort of snarky, you know, we don't care, we're, you know, we're tough guys, ha ha, look at these people crying. That's it, you know, that's the crux of, of Trump's syndrome, that's Elon Musk, and, and that stuff sells, it's junk food, man, you know, it's, it, it's, it's full of salt and fat, and you take a bite, you want another bite, you know, and that's what they're doing, they're handing around this bag of potato chips, you know, in, in fascism flavor, you know, and, and, and it has to stop. 
you know, I don't want to be talking about it, but I'm not going to stop talking about it. I'm not going to look away. And I know you're not either, you know. So I wanted to check in today and just sort of address that because the things are moving fast over there on Twitter with this kind of stuff. And it's like we need to nip it in the bud. You know, the national conversation is about this dinner, you know, at Mar-a-Lago because it is beyond the pale. And, and I'll finish that point if I didn't clearly, you know, Mainstream media could run with that two ways. They, they're running with it in the way that says, oh my God, can you believe he didn't denounce it and now Kevin McCarthy won't denounce it? And None of these guys are going to denounce it, right? It's their brand. They can't risk alienating the racists and anti-Semites that support them, right? But the other way to run that is for mainstream media to be like, hey, we already know this. This should come as no surprise. You know, the guy is clearly anti-Semitic. Here's 50 quotes that prove that. Here's 50 quotes that prove he's a racist. Here's his record. You know, that's the other way to run this story, you know, but they're not. They're running it, you know, in the way that's going to generate the most outrage. And we already lived through that outrage. You know, we already did four years of this with him as president, and we just added on another two. And we got real world problems right now, you know, and we're building back from a very dark period. And this is their attempt to, you know, to, to sort of like stymie that progress, you know, and, and it's got to stop. So... We're going to do it together. I know that's heavy and it's a lot, but I love you guys. I love that you're uh, reading the Substack. I put some work into those things, so feel free to keep digging in on that. It's free to sign up. It's no money. It's a great way to support the podcast. If you do want to subscribe, it's 12 bucks a month. And, uh, and I'm putting like three or four a week out, I think, uh, on average. So I won't I won't loosen up on that, and I, I take it pretty seriously. So... Uh, that's about it. I appreciate you listening. I got to see my boy's zebra on uh, Friday night. And, you know, I was talking about my dad. I had a, you know, I have a, I haven't, I don't have much of a relationship with my father anymore, but I had a relationship with him and he was a photographer and he lived in Woodstock a lot when I was a kid. And, you know, when uh, I, I, I moved into Westchester to live with my grandparents when I was about 14, my mom couldn't take care of me anymore, as some of you guys know. And, uh, I uh, I moved in with my grandparents, but I would get to go visit my dad sometimes on the weekends up in Woodstock. And one weekend I went up there and he said, hey, there's this new band that I heard on WPDH, which is a local radio station in, uh, in Poughkeepsie, New York. And he said, they're called Zebra, and they kind of sound like Zeppelin. It's a power trio, you know, and I bought tickets. We're going to go see them tonight. So I didn't really know what to expect, you know. I was psyched because I was into music and, you know, I'd seen like the Grateful Dead once before that and, you know, Jackson and the Eagles in the 70s. But I didn't have a lot of concerts under my belt, like, you know, that were my own sort of type of music, you know. So here was this young new band and uh, it's probably around 1985. And uh, they came out. It was the Mid-Hudson Civic. No, it was it was uh, uh, UPAC, Ulster Performing, Ulster Performing Arts Center, right? And they came out, and their first album had just come out, which is a classic. And they came out and just rocked, man. They were just, like, so great on their instruments. They were a power trio. They are kind of like Rush. Like, they were just complete, you know, prodigies with great songwriting and great-looking lead singer, you know, could sing really well and look cool. And they all looked cool and had on these, like, cool outfits they made for the gig. <laughs> you know, they don't wear... This is the 80s. They were, like... Uh, 
it almost looked like Miami Vice era, you know, like white tailored suits and shit. But uh, they completely rocked, you know, and I was like, this is my band. These are my guys, you know. I went back and bought the T-shirt, and uh, it was the, the famous zebra, you know, uh, chess piece on the thing, on a jersey, and wore it. And that was my band in junior high school, and I went to see him a lot with my dad. And my dad would bring his fancy camera, and I would take pictures of him from the audience, and then he would print them out, and I would put them up in my room, you know, uh, when I lived with my grandparents. And so I saw him on Friday night in Peekskill, New York, which is where my grandmother opened a homeless shelter in the 80s, and I saw him in a theater that my grandmother would do benefit concerts to, to raise money for the shelter with the great Doc Watson, um, great bluegrass guitar player, and it's the same theater I saw George Carlin in, and then I got to go back and see my boys in, in, in Zebra this weekend, and I went backstage and hung out with them, and it was a great concert, and they paid tribute to a guy named Mark Hitt, who is a local legend, you know, just a wonderful guitar player who taught a bunch of people in the New York area. He was like the East Coast's Eddie Van Halen, you know, but even like, you know, a, a, a league of his own. And you should check out his music if you get a chance. And he passed away in October, and it's tragic, but talk about a legacy. So that was very exciting, and it brought a lot, brought a lot of heart into it. But my point is, you know, music heals. I don't have a lot of great memories from my dad, you know, but I have that memory. You know, and I, and I have a soundtrack to it, you know, and like that's how we define our lives. We go through pain, right? Nothing works out. People do their best, even your parents, you know. My parents were kids when they had me, you know. I'm 51 now. They had me when they were 19, <laughs> okay? When you get older, you get perspective on things. They did the best they can. I love them. I love you guys. I love Zebra. I love music, you know. And I love the opportunity we have to make this world a better place. So let's all do it. All right. So that's episode 87 of the Noel Castler podcast. You can find me at noelcastler.com on Twitter. Oh, guitar's out of tune. Brand new strings. Anyway, you know where to find me. Check out my Substack. Check out a t-shirt if you want. They're on sale. They make good gifts. They're silk screened, high quality cotton. These aren't just like, you know, whatever things I ordered off the internet. These are made by a company that makes concert shirts, and the, the logo is designed by a guy who did Pearl Jam designs, and, you know, very great graphic artist. It's a pretty cool logo. You guys have seen it. So they're high-quality T-shirts. They're, they're a bit pricey, but they're worth it, and they support the, con, you know, the, the podcast and all the other stuff. So anyway, enough of a sales pitch. Do not feel ob obligated to buy one. Trust me. But I do appreciate you listening. I appreciate the support. Until next week, take care of yourselves. I'll try to do these more frequently. I know I was taking some time between episodes. I'll try to get them on more regular. Have a great week. Talk to you next week. Peace.